0: i'm taylor and welcome to a special episode of square mile of murder this week is our one year podiversary Woo! Woo and who and who and who and who and who also who we made it a whole year and what a year it has been we picked a
1: good year (laughs) (sighs) we picked a year all right (laughs) oh god Mm. that that's that's weird to think like it's interesting too because we had recorded a couple episodes before we released any last year yeah so like in my mind there's really no like definitive date it's sort of all the sort of like several week (laughs) amorphous period yeah but,
0: yes yes yeah, 19th of february 19th. so it'll be for this coming friday
1: yes yeah so uh in celebration you could go back and listen to our first episode oh no wait don't do that it's not that good
0: <laughs> no do not recommend start with episode four yeah that start. was a good one start there
1: and with like the raccoons yeah and like just jump around. I think we really hit our stride, like, I don't know, like 20-ish.
0: Yeah, after. when we're, by the time we're like balls deep in a pandemic, like, life's not getting any better. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, but it got us to here, so.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's pretty cool. And if yeah. you've been listening since the beginning, thank you. If you haven't. Where the heck were you No, just kidding.
0: Thank you also. Um
1: <laughs> yeah. We but,
0: are very grateful. And you know, one year that's longer than a lot of marriages, so it's true. We haven't killed each other yet. No. We are in separate countries. <laughs> that is true. When <laughs> you put it like that. <laughs> but no, it's
1: it's super cool and like there's several more of you than there were to begin with out there yeah. listening to us just fucking ramble on and on and on uh which is cool and thank you for choosing to spend your time <laughs> with us like
0: why but also it's cool thank you very much and to celebrate having been in your ear holes for a whole year
1: mm. we have
0: a very special two-parter lined up for you the story of a man you probably all heard of but we're gonna tell you about him anyway none other than h.h H. holmes uh, yeah H. H. holmes this is one of my
1: like earliest uh forays into true crime when i was a teenager much like jack the ripper in london a few years earlier the case of H.H. H. Holmes captured the press and the public's attention in the United States in a way that no case had before. And much like Jack the Ripper, H.H. H. Holmes became known as the country's first serial, ki- serial killer. Speaking is hard. I've been doing it for a year. I'm all tired out. <laughs> also, much like his British counterpart... Uh, as the story of H.H. H. Holmes established itself in serial killer and true c- crime lore, the facts got a bit lost. And as as is wont to happen, the legend took over. Um, so there's some stuff that's not super accurate uh, that's floating around out there. Uh, and there's sort of a lot more to the story than a man who built his own murder hotel. So let's... Go back to the start and try to untangle all this all this stuff, and hopefully we'll get it right, but if not, you know we tried
0: We did our best yeah it's all we can do exactly uh first things first, although he has cemented his place in history as America's first serial killer, it's not technically true; there were actually a few cases that we could describe as serial murder that took place before Holmes began his killings. So these are specifically in,
1: like, North America, right?
0: Yeah, so these are in the USA. According to Charlotte Grieg, in her book Serial Killers, there are two cases of serial murder which preceded Holmes in the USA. They are the Bloody Benders... And the Servant Girl Annihilator. The Bloody Benders were a family from Lebet County in Kansas. The family consisted of parents John and Elvira Bender. Great name. Great name. I love that name. Yeah, it's good. I mean, I always think of, you know, Elvira. Yes. <laughs> Mistress of Darkness, but, you know, cool name. Uh, so, yeah, John and Elvira and their adult children, Kate and John Jr., were both in their 20s the family preyed on travelers passing through the area and it is estimated that they killed at least 11 people possibly as many as 20 in 1872 and 1873 but due to you know shoddy record keeping back in the 1870s little is actually known about the case and there's a lot of mythology that surrounds it which is difficult to, like, unpick from the truth. Mm-hmm. So we don't even really know the true fate of the family, if they were arrested, if they escaped. Both versions of the story exist. <laughs> but yeah, proceeded Holmes by more than a decade.
1: Yeah. Uh, now the other one, the servant girl Annihilator, who is also known as the Austin Axe Murderer, was an unidentified serial killer who killed eight young girls with an axe in the Austin area between 1884 and 1885. And he also injured six more uh, women and two men. Suspects range from cowboys to voodoo practitioners, but the murderer was never caught. Uh, In this case, also draws a lot of parallels to Jack the Ripper, And it's been suggested by some that the Austin axe murderer and Jack the Ripper were actually the same person. Uh, Charlotte Grieg's book also questions the legendary status of Holmes as the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history. Uh, But we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, So, now that we've completely destroyed this guy's rep, like, (laughs) you're not the first man who are you trying to fool uh, let's actually get into the story of
0: H. H. Holmes. H. H. Holmes was born Herman Webster Mudgett in May 1861, and grew up in New Hampshire. His parents, Levi and Theodate, were devout Methodists, and both were descended from the you know first wave of English immigrants who settled in New England. Hmm. He was the middle of five children with an older brother and sister and a younger brother and sister. Nicely balanced. Very one. symmetrical yeah. family layout there. Yeah. There are conflicting reports about the kind of childhood that Holmes had. Uh, reports from a time suggest it was fairly normal, but more modern accounts and retellings try to fit him into what we now think of as like the classic serial killer childhood of An abusive parent, a history of torturing animals, but there's no known evidence of either. Yeah. He was reportedly a gifted student, but was also sometimes bullied by other students, which can kind of fit into that serial killer trope, but bit of a stretch. Yeah. Uh, Holmes graduated from school at the age of 16 and took on a number of teaching posts around New Hampshire. In July 1878, Holmes married his first wife, Clara. Their son, Robert, was born about 18 months later. And an interesting side note, Robert went on to become a chartered accountant and at one point was the city manager of Orlando, Florida. That's very I don't know what a city random. manager is. I, but, you
1: know. I don't know. I was going to say, like, urban planning, but probably not if he's a chartered accountant. Maybe he's, like...
0: I don't know. I mean, it's all in the same circles of boring.
1: (laughs) Maybe he's, like, in charge of their budget or something. Maybe. So, in 1882, the family moved to Ann Arbor uh, in Michigan. And Holmes enrolled in the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and Surgery to begin training as a doctor. He previously studied medicine at the University of Vermont in Burlington, but he had dropped out after less than a year in 1881. Now, it's here in the script that Kat has written likely tangent about Vermont, to which I say, nothing. There will be no tangent.
0: Well, I'm quite disappointed. I
1: mean, University of Vermont is a beautiful campus. It's
0: mm, kind of and so isn't Burlington... Near where your mom lives?
1: No. It's oh. uh, Burlington's up on closer to the Canadian border. Burlington's oh. the biggest city in the state, but it's a really beautiful little like lakeside city. It's on Lake Champlain. Uh, and yeah, the university is up there, so there's a lot of students and and stuff like that.
0: Yeah. Uh, what do you call people from Vermont?
1: Vermonters.
0: Oh. I just wondered, like, were they Vermonters? Were they Vermontian? No, Vermonter, for sure. Vermonties.
1: <laughs> managed to get a tangent about Vermont in there, but to be <laughs> fair, that was like mostly your fault. So, it's always my fault. Yeah. That's, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Um, so it was during his time at medical school that Holmes began his criminal career. And what a career it was. Much more expansive than his medical career. Yeah. Now, obviously, at medical schools, there are cadavers uh, for students to learn anatomy. But instead, Holmes decided to use uh, the cadavers to commit insurance fraud. Uh, Which is quite clever, if disturbing. Yeah. Uh, So he would steal the cadavers and give them fake names and take out life insurance on them. And then mutilate them and claim on the life insurance, saying that they had died in a terrible accident. And this seemed to work. It seemed to have gone undetected during his time in school. uh, And he graduated two years later in 1884.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a few, as with every, pretty much every case, not even all the old ones, but like every case, there's a few different versions of events. Yeah. There's another version where he would find local families, um, somehow force them to skip town uh-huh. and then, uh, you know, mutilate these cadavers and pretend that they were these families mm. that he'd, you know, taken insurance out on. hmm uh-huh.
1: He was big on the insurance fraud, this yeah. this guy.
0: The, the whole, like, being able to take life insurance out on Anyone. people that you barely know. I know. I find so strange. Oh, I agree. Also, like,
1: I don't know if we've talked about this in a previous episode or if I've listened to it in, like, another podcast or something, but the fact that, like, in the early days of um, air travel, you could just buy a life insurance policy in the airport lobby, like, before you got on the plane. Didn't know that. Yeah, kind of terrifying.
0: <laughs> that's, yeah, not worrying in the slightest, is it? No. Okay, before you go and hop on this uh, big tin can that's gonna fly through the air.
1: At hurtling just, speeds.
0: Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's just uh, get you some life insurance real quick.
1: And it was, like, cheap it was like, 10 10- 10 cents or something <laughs> it's like oh that makes that makes me feel good about the choice i'm about to make so yes um he's commitment insurance fraud graduated in 1884 however just before he graduated holmes uh, became increasingly abusive to clara and she left him and returned to new hampshire and she later said that she had little idea of what holmes got up to after she left
0: uh, following graduation, Holmes briefly moved to Moors. Mo- I'd say mo-
1: Moors. Mo- mo- moors. Like, m- kind of like Moors, but like Moors.
0: Moors. Yeah. place <laughs> called Moors Fox in New York State. And um, pretty soon a rumor began circulating in the town that Holmes had been seen with a young boy who then disappeared. But Holmes claimed that the young boy had just returned to his home in Massachusetts. And there was no investigation. Like, why is it a young boy, like a child, just wandering around in a neighbouring state? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. Uh, Holmes quickly fled New York State and settled in neighbouring Pennsylvania. Where he found a job as a keeper in a hospital in Philadelphia. Uh, Whatever a keeper is, I don't know. Maybe like a custodian? I don't know. Maybe, yeah. Uh, But whatever it was, he quit a few days later and found work at a pharmacy in the city. But again, this job didn't last long either. Because a young boy died after taking medication that Holmes had sold to him. And Holmes quickly skipped town again. And this is when he changed his name. So up until this point, he was still going by Herman Webster Mudgett. But this, uh, when he skips uh, Philadelphia, he changed his name to Dr. Henry Howard Holmes, or H.H. Holmes. And he moved to Chicago and began running all kinds of scams.
1: I mean, I will say that... The last name, Holmes, is a lot better than Mudgett.
0: Yeah. And um, it's kind of accepted that he changed his name to Holmes because of the Sherlock Holmes stories. Mm. But they weren't published in America until four years later. Hmm. So So just random name, it seems. Yeah. In August of 1886, Holmes took a job at Elizabeth S. Holden's Pharmacy on the corner of South Wallace Avenue and West 63rd Street in the Englewood neighbourhood of Chicago. And this seems to be the one that stuck because Holmes was reportedly a dedicated employee and no scandals emerged that forced him to skip town and change his identity again.
1: Finally. Finally found a place he can settle into. In 1887, Holmes married his second wife, Myrta, uh, you know, despite not having divorced his first wife, Clara. Uh, And the couple had a daughter named Lucy. Uh, Now, according to some sources, the reason that he didn't divorce Clara was because the paperwork was too complicated and he just couldn't be bothered. I mean... Why not?
0: I, yeah, I mean, I, I quite believe that. Yeah, sounds about right.
1: Um, Myrta and Lucy lived in a village called Wilmet, which is about 14 miles outside of Chicago, and Holmes would travel uh, back and forth between the family home and the pharmacy in the city. Uh, things carried on quietly for another couple of years until 1889, when Holmes bought the pharmacy from Elizabeth Horton. Uh, Some accounts claim that Elizabeth's husband mysteriously died, prompting her to sell the pharmacy, and then she vanished herself. Uh, And then these accounts portray Elizabeth as an elderly woman looking to retire. Other accounts claim that they just decided to sort of sell up, uh, and that Elizabeth and her husband were in their 30s and were actually just a few years older than Holmes. Uh, According to the book, the true story of the white city devil records show that the Hortons remained in the Inglewood neighborhood for most of their lives and lived well into tw- into the 20th century so that sounds more like a sort of a- on the up and up business deal Holmes had also bought an empty lot across the street from the pharmacy And uh, construction had begun on a two-story, mixed-use building, which had space for a large pharmacy on the ground floor, other shopping spaces, and apartments on the upper floors. Um, This latest project, of course, with our our man here, was not scandal-free. Holmes had raised the money to fund it through a series of scams, because of course he did. And during construction, there were multiple instances of Holmes not paying workers and suppliers. According to Crime and Investigation, Holmes would only allow contractors to work on small sections of the building before firing them and bringing in a new team to build the next section. And if any of them asked questions about Holmes' design, they were quickly replaced with new workers.
0: In 1892, Holmes added a third floor to the building. Uh, supposedly, in anticipation of the upcoming World's Columbian Exposition in 1893, which we'll talk about more in part two next week. Uh, when it was completed, the building, you know, stretched the entire block, and it was known locally as the Castle due to its massive size. So, when it was
1: completed, there were actually 35. 35- Normal, functional hotel rooms in the castle. Uh, but the rest was... How should we put this? Sort of like a hellscape maze, which only Holmes himself knew the exact layout of. Which is convenient for him. Oh, yeah. Uh, now, to give you a sort of general idea of what we're talking about here, there were 51 doors, which... Opened onto a brick wall, numerous staircases that went nowhere, windowless and doorless rooms which were only accessible by a trapdoor from the floor above. Uh, There were rooms which could only be opened from the outside and had gas lines running into them. Uh, There was also a basement which uh, contained, among other things, a quicklime pit, acid pits, an airtight bank vault. And a cremation oven slash chamber, some doors on the upper floors just opened into nothing and and if you happened to cross the threshold, you'd fall straight down a chute into the basement
0: right, so Holmes is the only person that knows the layout right yeah, imagine if he's like, if he went out and got very, very drunk <laughs> and just got lost, I mean, trying to get home. Uh, in his own building
1: just sounds like a nightmare to like try to remember all these things honestly yeah. like what if you accidentally fell into the acid pit from one of your doors to
0: nowhere i know right like, that's what i mean like if you if was drunk and you wouldn't be able to get out of the acid pit no. because you'd be drunk and then you'd be burning and you'd probably break your legs on the way down like yeah well, when you hit the bottom yeah wouldn't be good Um,
1: Holmes also had a secret lab in the basement where he would dissect bodies so that he could then sell them to local medical schools, which he did on numerous occasions. And, you know, nobody seemed to ask any questions about where he was getting all these bodies. The building was such a labyrinth that when Holmes was finally arrested, it took police two weeks just to map out a floor plan of the building. That's a long time. Yeah. Um, so when uh, construction on the building was completed, homes began advertising for staff. People, particularly young women, traveled from all over the country to work in Chicago in the run-up to the World's Fair in 1893. When a new member of staff started at the hotel or at one of the businesses that were run, um... Out of the ground floor retail spaces, Holmes made it a condition of their employment that they had to have life insurance, which, of course, he would take care of and pay for and also be the benefactor of. It's like. Pretty good deal for him. Yeah. Um, Once the hotel was up and running, Holmes also insisted that guests staying there had to take out life insurance again, which he would arrange. Uh, for the duration of their stay. So he's just like an all service hotelier, is he not?
0: Yeah, I mean, he's getting a lot done. He is getting a lot and, done. And he's only in his early days, only a few years older than we are now. I mean, what have we done? Not. I have not built a maze in a giant building no, in Chicago. No. I have not completed medis- medical school. No. In only two years, mind you. Mm. Um, I have not had two marriages no or any children no
1: I've only had the one marriage and it's not been bigamous so like
0: I was worried about where you were going to (laughs) say when you said and it's not been (laughs) so yeah he's getting a lot done he's a busy guy there are five murders which are generally accepted to be Holmes's earliest known or at least confirmed murders And the first of these took place in 1891. So in autumn of 1891, the original design of the castle was completed. So this is before Holmes decided to expand, you know, for the World's Fair. And Julia Smythe and her husband Ned Connor had moved into the castle. Ned had begun working in a jewellery shop that Holmes had opened on the ground floor of the building. Um, At one point, he actually sold it to Ned, but then Ned realized he'd actually sold him a lot of debt (laughs) and uh, quickly reversed the sale. Good job, Ned. Uh, Yeah. So, as well as selling him a building that was massively in debt, (laughs) Holmes had also begun an affair with Julia. And when Ned found out, he left her and a six-year-old daughter Pearl at the castle. Julia had full custody of Pearl, and the two continued to live in the castle. And Julia continued her relationship with Holmes. She also worked for him as a bookkeeper for his various businesses. That was until she fell pregnant. Holmes was still married to two women, (laughs) and he was adamant that Julia could not give birth to his baby. So on Christmas Eve 1891, he performed an abortion on her. But it turned out that although he had graduated from med school, he had absolutely no idea what he was doing when it came to surgery. And reports vary but as to exactly how it happened, but sadly, Julia died on the operating table. Some say she bled out, some say it was an overdose of chloroform. Either way... Wasn't good. Yeah. She died in the basement of the castle.
1: Holmes quickly disposed of Julia's body. He reportedly invited an employee of his, Charles M. Chappelle, into an office uh, in the castle to show him Julia's dead body, and then asked Chappelle if he wanted to make some money. Uh, Now, for his part, Chappelle was unfazed by the murdered woman in front of him, and replied, of course. Uh, So Holmes asked him to articulate Julia's skeleton, uh, and then Chappelle did that. He prepared the skeleton and sold it to a local medical school. Holmes got lucky in this case because Julia was six feet tall, which was quite unusual for women back then. So when he sold Julia's skeleton, the doctor at the medical school didn't ask a lot of questions. He just sort of marveled at the fact that he was now in possession of this six foot tall female skeleton. Uh, We don't know exactly what happened to Julia's daughter, Pearl, only that she wasn't seen again, and it's widely accepted that Holmes killed Pearl and disposed of her body. Uh, When people began to ask questions about where Julia and Pearl were, Holmes simply told them that they had left town. Uh, Although the new tenant, Mrs. Doyle, would later describe the bizarre scene, when Holmes rented out Julia and Pearl's old apartment, she claimed that it was as if the pair had just vanished. Uh, there were still dishes on the table, clothes in the closet, and Pearl's doll was abandoned on the floor. Uh, but despite this, Mrs. Doyle and her family moved right on in.
0: So, with all old stories, especially ones that have taken on this legendary, almost mythical status, the timeline of Holmes's crimes and general life events is a bit jumbled. Um, so different sources say different things, times, dates, places, we're just not sure of. And one of these dates and times is when Benjamin Paitzel entered into Holmes's life and dodgy dealings. <laughs> Paitzel is described as a recovering alcoholic who had married young and was father to five children. Sometime in the late 1880s or early 1890s, Peitzel and Holmes became friends, although some sources describe Peitzel as more of a parasite who clung to Holmes. Peitzel was undergoing undergoing treatment for alcoholism when he met Emmeline Sigrande. Uh, Emmeline worked at a sanatorium for alcoholics in Dwight, Illinois, where one of the doctors thought he had discovered a cure for alcoholism. Oh. Evidently hadn't. <laughs> and Holmes had se- sent sent to this sanatorium for treatment for alcoholism. Yeah. So, Emmeline was reportedly, you know, very young, beautiful woman and she caught Peitzel's eye, despite him being married with Kit. And he told her all about his employer, Dr H H Holmes, in Chicago. And when he was in Chicago, he told Holmes all about Emmeline, this beautiful young woman he'd met. Intrigued, Holmes wrote to Emmeline and offered her a job paying 50% more than she'd been paid at the sanatorium. So she accepted, and in the summer of 1892, she moved to Chicago and took on a job as, I think it was a stenographer, to... Well, basically, she was Holmes' personal assistant, by the sounds of it. Uh, Believing that Holmes was in the process of divorcing his wife, Emmeline began a relationship with Holmes, who by that point was 31. By autumn of
1: 1892, uh, Emmeline had written to her family in Lafayette, Indiana, to say that she was engaged, uh, although Holmes had told her to use an alias. Uh, Robert Phelps, because he said that using his real name might jeopardize his divorce from Myrta. So her relatives uh, came to visit soon after she told them of her engagement, but conveniently or not, I suppose, Holmes was never available to meet with them. And uh, consequently, Emmeline's family had no idea who he was or what he looked like. Uh, her family were suspicious, and her father even pointed out problems with the <laughs> construction of the castle, uh, but she wasn't interested in what, hearing what they had to say because, you know, she was in love, and their love was real, and all sorts of fun things like that. Uh, so the wedding was arranged by Holmes for December 1892, but then suddenly... Emmeline disappeared. When a friend of Emmeline's asked Holmes about her, he said that she had left Chicago to get married, and he produced a wedding card confirming the wedding of Emmeline to Robert Phelps. Uh, he also sent the same card to Emmeline's family, and she was never heard from again. So, in reality, according to an entry on Murderpedia, a few days before their wedding, Holmes had led Emmeline into Uh, the office and asked her to retrieve some papers from the bank vault in the basement. And he watched her walk into the vault and then locked her in and waited, pressed up against the uh, vault for hours as she cried out and uh, beat her fists against the vault door uh, where she begged for her life until she eventually suffocated. And a couple of months later, Holmes sold a skeleton of a young woman to a local medical school.
0: But Holmes wouldn't dwell too much on Emmeline's murder. He had made money from her death, selling the skeleton, probably a life insurance policy as well. And now he had moved on to a new mark, because it became painfully clear these women were little more than targets to him. In the spring of 1893, a former actress, Minnie Williams, moved to Chicago. There are varying reports about how she and Holmes met. Some say it was in an employment office in Chicago, and others say that it was in Boston years earlier. Either way, Minnie and her sister Nanny, who we'll meet soon, were wealthy orphans. They'd inherited substantial wealth following the death of their parents. (laughs) In 1893, Holmes managed to rope them into his schemes and scams. (laughs) Uh, Following a whirlwind romance, in the spring of 1893, uh, Minnie and Holmes married. Although he was still married to Clara and And Holmes managed to convince Minnie to sign over various properties to himself and Pitzel, But they used a number of false names but he was also a notary so he could like sign the documents and everything uh-huh. under his real name or under HJ H. H. Holmes but they were being transferred to a completely false identity uh-huh. and he also managed to gain control of her finances
1: Um, So, following the wedding, the couple moved into an apartment of their own, completely separate from the castle, in the affluent neighborhood of Lincoln Park. And in July 1893, Minnie's sister Nanny came to visit. But no sooner had she arrived in Chicago, uh, Nanny disappeared. And she supposedly wrote to their aunt saying that she planned to accompany Minnie and her new brother-in-law on a trip to Europe. Uh, somehow, Holmes had also managed to convince Nanny to sign over all of her property, money, and other assets to him before she disappeared. Now, again, as with most things, where Holmes is concerned, accounts differ on exactly what happened to Nanny, Um An entry on Murderpedia claims that she died in the bank vault in the same way that Emmeline had, but an article by All That's Interesting says that Nanny's fate was never confirmed and her death became sort of part of the lore surrounding Holmes. Similarly, there are a lot of discrepancies about what happened to Minnie. Some say that she disappeared at the same time as Nanny, but other sources claim that following Nanny's death, she accompanied Holmes to the property in Fort Worth, Texas that she had just signed over to him. Uh, Minnie was never seen again, and neither her nor Nanny's bodies were ever found.
0: By the time Minnie and Nanny disappeared, the World's Fair was in full swing in Chicago. And that leads us to another big question that kind of hangs over the story of H.H. H. Holmes. And that is, did he actually build and operate a hotel? So it's kind of accepted in the sort of story of H.H. H. Holmes that he built the top floor of his castle as a hotel to house, you know, some of the millions of people who would be flooding into Chicago that year for the World's Fair. But some of the most recent works on HH H. Holmes have revised that story and claim that the hotel was simply another one of his scams. Holmes got investors to invest money in a hotel for the World's Fair, you know, which would be a great investment opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was kind of a get rich quick scheme. Suddenly he had all these investors of this money from investors. And he was able to get credit and material from local suppliers, which he could then sell on for profit, or he just had money to burn, essentially, do what he wanted. Uh-huh. But as he supposedly travelled to Texas after killing Nanny Williams, H. H. Holmes would have been nowhere near Chicago when the World's Fair was taking place. And the sources which posit that he was actually in Texas during the World's Fair also claim that Holmes and Paitzel renovated the property in Fort Worth in a similar design to the castle in Chicago. With the, you know, weird layout and doors to nowhere Mm. and things like that. But he never actually intended to live there. This was just another scam. Of course. (laughs) Um, so in this version of events, Holmes had
1: used the property as collateral to loan money and get credit, but ownership of the property had been transferred to an alias of Holmes. So when the work was completed and bills came in, there was nobody to pay the bills and nobody could track down the supposed owner of the property. Um, once the renovation was finished, Holmes and Pitzel left Texas, but they hired a friend's wife to impersonate Minnie so that people thought Uh, She had been seen after Holmes left Texas. Now, it would suggest to us that if you need to hire someone to impersonate a person to make sure other people have seen them, that means that probably that person is no longer alive and therefore that Minnie was probably murdered at some point during that summer in Texas. Uh, (laughs) Seems about right. The All That's Interesting article, which is based on the most recent research in uh, A.H.H. Holmes' case, also claims that Holmes was arrested for fraud in Colorado in the autumn of 1893 while he was traveling from Texas back to Chicago. And that he spent the rest of 1893 in prison and didn't get back to Chicago
0: until January 1894. And that's about where we're going to leave it today. And we'll pick up again next week, where we'll talk about the other version of events during the World's Fair and the rest of Holmes's criminal career and his downfall. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Yep. Um, if you are a patron, we will see you this Friday for our monthly ramble. Uh-huh. And everyone else, we will be back next week with part two. Yes. We'll see you then. Thank you so much for listening, and thanks for a year. One whole year! (laughs) Woohoo! Eh, bye bye! Bye!